143rd episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 41 years to the day since an MCC member grabbed umpire David Constant by the scruff of the neck. Coming off after a fifth failed pitch inspection, the member's frustration boiled over. The MCC took the matter very seriously, sending the member a stiff letter of rebuke. I mean, it is a dangerous job being an umpire, isn't it? I mean, you can't really consider yourself to be held responsible for the condition of the pitch on a kind of grey August day. But, you know, apparently uh, this particular MCC member, probably a few bottles of claret down, decided that another, another situation was taking place. It's the grabbing by the scruff of the neck that I like. I feel like that is the exact correct way for an MCC member to show their distaste. Or maybe kind of batting at someone with a with a long-handled <laughs> umbrella. Um, so in this, the uh, 143rd episode of uh, Reverse Threat Radio, well, Andy's been at Lord's today. Um, he's looking a bit windbeaten rather than suntanned. After that, he's going to tell us all about the experience. Um, I'm going to be diving into uh, some of the uh, wonderful tradition of making excuses in cricket. I've certainly made a few excuses for my own cricket. And we're going to be reviewing Alan Ross's uh, masterly 1950 book Cape Summer and the Australians in England. Um, so Andy, a day at Lords, how was it? So it's the first time I've been there since the pandemic began and however many times I go to Lords, I'll never stop being a little in awe of it. You walk through the Grace Gates, you look up and it, it, it's special every time and after being the first time in two years I think it's it's never looked better. It was very nice to return to the familiar traditions of county cricket. So there are a host of foods that I only ever eat at cricket. I think this is probably good for my long-term health. Um, so it was a welcome back to the Scotch egg, the pork pie, and the Percy pigs. All from M&S, Cons- I imagine, given all, that combination. All, all from M&S, and consumed in a sort of, you know, uh, there's no particular structure, the, the, the no sort of savoury sweet division. Uh, actually, one of my friends really upped the snacking game. He, he brought uh, mature cheddar cheese sticks, which were an interesting addition to the okay. uh, cricket snacking canon. Um, bad light stopped play which allowed us to enjoy the age-old tradition of grumbling about how it was just as light as it had been all day and then staring at the clouds to try to guess if it was going to get any lighter you know like amateur amateur meteorologists there is quite an extraordinary experience isn't there of being at the cricket and you never watch the weather quite so hard it's the same with rain where you're always trying to judge whether it's getting lighter or heavier and whether it's something that's just a temporary squall or it's light over there and that's where the wind's kind of coming from. It does do funny things to your brain sitting there intently staring at the weather on it. Well, at at least there's something reasonably binary about rain, whereas with light, the the sort of anger it can elicit because everyone feels that it's not as dark as the umpires are telling them. Um, And the final tradition that was lovely to see was everyone's very strong opinion on each of the LBWs, despite us being about 50 yards away down at third man, but uh, that that didn't hold us back. Um, And so how uh, how was the cricket itself? Very decent game. So Middlesex have been struggling this season and they, they found themselves in trouble 14 for three early on um, and then recovered to 218 for five by the close. Um, so we also had the sight of Robbie White, who has fallen twice in the 90s this season, uh, or at least this year, and has then uh, went on to make 100 today. And you felt there was particular relief in his celebration, his first his first career 100, uh, and got a very, very warm, warm response from the crowd. So 
it's a you Monday. Are... I, I don't want to get you in trouble, but did you did you pull a sickie or did you take a day of take a day of leave? It's because a bank surely holiday. pulling a sickie to go to the cricket is as it's much a... <laughs> tradition as eating Percy pigs and, um, and Scotch eggs. That I, that I, I would obviously not be able to comment on that, but uh, today was today today was a bank holiday. You're so you're so out of touch with oh, your, your of English course, roots. Of course, I thought you were going to not be able to comment on it, but I was just going to say you are looking a bit peaky. So you know, if anyone is, if any any of your employers are listening, then they would know that. Um, they would know that in Cr- fact, cricket is very the best today. way to recover. Indeed, and cricket is the only way to recover. I think. And you have been um, at a, a somewhat frustrating time in the Australian summer um, d- due to um, ongoing COVID. You've been continuing to find cricket amidst the uh, amidst the gloom. Well, it is. I mean, it, it is a frustrating time. Not only because it's it's not summer; it's the middle of winter. But we have been in um, we have been in lockdown for. Uh, Gosh, what is it? I don't know how many weeks it is. Ten weeks now, and it's going to kind of go on, go on for longer. Who knows how much longer? Um, and it looks like it's going to kind of start eating into the eating into the summer, and therefore the likelihood of being able to get back together and actually play some play some cricket um, together. But the good news, the silver lining, is that um, I discovered through there's a kind of um, government app where you can look at your five kilometer radius. So we're all allowed five kilometers from our homes at the moment, and you're allowed to meet up with one other person from ex- for, for exercise. And um, a friend found an app where you can kind of overlay your radius with that of someone else and see where the kind of where your five kilometers overlap. And thank you know through this kind of joyful serendipity. There are these cricket nets within this overlap of of, um, of my best friend, and so um, these we've turned up at these nets. They're kind of sandwiched between a dog racing track and some and some railway arches. It's a kind of salubrious place. To... Can, can we uh, next visit? Can we get a photo? This sounds like a, a very atmospheric. It is quite atmospheric. It's under this enormous, um, absolutely enormous fig tree, and there are these kind of uh, any anything on the um, that ends up on the on the offside um, is covered in. Uh, there are sort of these barbed railings you have to climb over in order to get the ball back and we had quite an amusing time a couple of weekends ago where I genuinely thought I was going to end up in uh, in A&E with because um, my friend climbed over the railings to get the ball back but got stuck on top of them and I thought this is this is absolute kind of vintage do you remember those old Crime Stoppers episodes where you know you saw horrible gory ways that people used to get um, used to get injured I thought that just absolutely flashed before my eyes in fact I ended up waking up in the middle of the night thinking about it anyway it's a bit of an improvised kind of setup. We have to um, improvise the improvise the stumps. We don't have any pads, and there's nothing worse for your technique than than netting without a without pads on. It's very true. Um, where your first instinct is get your legs out of the way rather than get your get your front foot forward. But but these Sunday Sunday net sessions have rapidly become um, a highlight of our of our week, and it seems that we're not alone. We often have to to wait for others others to finish. Other usually rather more competent cricketers. Um, m- most noteworthy is a kind of twenty something woman um, who turns up religiously every week with her coach, um, which is quite which is quite impressive. And are you working on any uh, any particular aspects of your technique? Any um, surprises bat- that we need to batting warn? and bowling is what I'm working. Right, bat- I'm working on at the moment. You've not. I'm quite enjoying bowling little. Not, um, not working on. Uh, you've, you haven't been listening to the England cricketers. They were working on their wobble seam. You're not working on my, your wobble my seam. My wobble no? seam I perfected years ago. It's the upright seam that I'm really struggling uh, with. But I'm actually ha- quite enjoying bowling little leg cutters at the moment, um, which is quite. I, I tried to bowl off spin for a while, and that went horribly wrong. Um, so uh, it just depends on on different days. I'm I'm very mercurial. On different days, I'll turn into different different types of cricketer. <laughs> 
The umpire was blind. I had a bee in my helmet. We've all made them. Cricket is a sport filled with excuses and Toby today is going to be taking us through some of the greatest ones and some of the psychology behind them. I was reading an obituary of the late Ted Dexter uh, last week and I was amused to encounter an anecdote from when he was chairman of the English Selectors. So in 1989, England were thrashed 4-0 in the Ashes. And in the press conference after that, he was asked specifically what it, what it, you know what mistakes he had made as the chairman of the selector that had contributed towards that. Um, he couldn't name any mistakes that he'd made. Instead, he um, he chose to say that the lines of Venus were in the wrong juxtaposition. Now, I'm not totally sure. No one seems to be totally sure whether he's joking here. Um, but and I will do. I will stop at nothing for the sake of Reverse Web Radio listeners. I spent quite a lot of time on an astronomy website trying to work out whether Venus would actually have had anything to do, according to to astronomy, or is it astrology? I don't know. Um, would have it's had anything. Definitely astro- it's definitely astrology. <laughs> yeah, true, I would like true. to defend the good okay, honour okay, of the okay, astronomers yes, right, out there. Okay, so astrology whether venus had anything to do with england's performances in those um ashes and it turns out that that it that it almost certainly almost certainly didn't um but the point isn't necessarily uh, the nature of planetary alignment here the point is more dexter's kind of uh speed to the grasp for any kind of excuse however ridiculous that excuse might be um, I was thinking about excuses again a couple of days later after um, watching Kohli uh, talk after India's innings defeat, latest innings defeat against England in the test in the test series. He was asked this rather marvelous question by a reporter. He was asked why had India failed when the batting conditions were beautiful, but they had battled through without losing wickets in dim light when the ball was swinging. And what the reporter was basically saying is, don't make an excuse of the conditions. He was taking the conditions out of there as an excuse. Um, Cody didn't use the conditions as an excuse. He said that England, uh, India were not on the money and England were. Still, the reporter pressed him, you know, was your decision at the toss, was that the right one? And Cody declined to take any responsibility, again, just saying England had played better. And what was interesting about this is Cody was looking as though he wasn't making any excuses. He was saying, I'm not going to make any excuses. We played badly. But he was actually using that as an excuse for his own Mm. decisions and refusing to take any culpability himself around that. There's a really interesting thing here about what we do and don't expect of captains, because this happened after the second test at Lords, where Joe Root did take full responsibility, and England had that horrible, mad morning where they got everything wrong against India's tail. And you can sort of argue it a bit both ways, because I thought it was very impressive, Root stepping up, and I thought it was good. But there was a little part of me that felt, well, hang on, he's got some experienced bowlers behind him, etc., should he be taking all the flack for this? Mm. And it, it's an interesting thing there around particularly what we do and don't expect of our of our captains. Well, exactly. And I think excuses are so often a part of the way that we talk about the game of cricket. Um, and so this got, this got me thinking about that that phenomenon and about why... Um, why we make so much, so many excuses in cricket, and why those excuses so often to be appear to be frankly overthought. And so, again, stopping at nothing for the sake of uh, reverse red radio listeners, um, I've been reading a book called A Critical Introduction to Sports Psychology, and in this book, there's an interesting analysis of golf, which I think is quite applicable to, to cricket in some in some senses. Um, and it's analysis of golf uh, in terms of why the sport is so conducive to overthinking and therefore ultimately to making excuses and blaming other things. So the first reason the um, authors say that, that, that golf falls into this category 
is because it's an untimed sport that takes as long as it takes. So it takes a long time to do it. You set out thinking it's going to take a certain time and it can often take a lot longer. And that puts people into a weird mental space um, when they're playing it. And yeah. people get upset when golf plays, you know, takes longer than you think. And cricket is exactly the same, particularly mm. in the test format. You have no idea whether it's going to be over in three days or it's going to be over in five days. There's no way of kind of adequately framing your expectation of the game as there is in football where you know it's absolutely going to take 90 minutes plus seven minutes stoppage I, time or something like that I, and i think adding and link to that there's also this feature that i guess in both golf and cricket you don't always know how quickly you'll have the chance to make amends yeah, for exactly something. so if for example um you're a batsman and you throw your wicket away cheaply you know your team may win by an innings and you may not get to bat again yep. and you know that's so, so th- there's that sort of unfortunate unpredictability well particularly well. with there being press conferences at the end of every day of a test say you know mm. you can have a disastrous day one day and then you're making every excuse under the sun and then the next day you could have had the most brilliant day on a on a pitch that a team has ever had and redeemed it all you know and that day before has been totally forgotten about um so the second thing about golf is that you have to take full responsibility for your own performance so the way that your opponent plays aside from whatever kind of pressure that might put on you your opponent actually has nothing to do with your round of golf it's a totally solitary thing so you have to if you want to find an excuse you can't just say the opposition was better than me that's not an excuse in golf um you have to find something else to blame you have to blame your shoes or the wind direction or the nature of the putting greens or the fact that your head of your nine iron fell off or something like that um now this is less directly applicable to cricket where clearly the opposition has more of an impact on on the game however cricket is one of those games where there are so many um variable factors outside you and the and the opposition the pitch is a huge factor the weather is a huge factor the state of the ball is a is you know is a huge factor um as well i I think in club in village and club cricket i think it is nearly always the the pitch gets the blame i mean the umpire gets the blame a reasonable amount but 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 for dodgy dismissal dismissals uh it's often the pitch's fault well it is and you often and you also think these uh often these factors are a great leveler as well particularly on on in one day games you know everyone's kind of playing on the same pitch and it's very mm-hmm. rare that a pitch will change from one side you know from one side to one side to the next um the third thing um, about golf which i think is is very applicable to, to cricket is that you have a lot of time to think so on a golf course apparently you spend less than 20 percent of the time that you're out playing a round of golf actually applying yourself to the business of playing a shot um in cricket it must be way less time than that that you're actually involved in the action during you know during a game um i mean fielding when you think about it is a really curious phenomenon Mm. because you have to be alert every single ball and yet uh, what proportion of balls if you're not the keeper Mm. probably what one in i don't know what the statistics are one in one in 30 balls might come to you in the in the field and so this kind of stop start um you know, situation that you're in, but also the fact that you just have an awful lot of time, whether you're standing at the non-striker's end or standing in the field, you have an awful lot of time to think, and therefore this gives, uh, you know, lends itself towards a phenomenon of overthinking and therefore coming up with these kind of, you know, extraordinary um, excuses in order to justify what's going on on the pitch, whereas in a shorter timed um times match you're more likely just to be much more direct and spontaneous about analyzing what's actually what's actually happening i think there's also this feature that it is a game i mean i often think particularly batting uh, maybe to a greater extent than bowling 
even the best players fail the entire time. You know, you look at the you look at sort of a run of scores of like you know a, a ten dulf or whatever. Even when they're in reasonable form, and there's plenty of failures. And I wonder if almost just to kind of protect your <laughs> protect your sense of sanity, sometimes you need to say this is not all on me. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well. There's also this interesting question of, of when an excuse is not an excuse. When is an excuse a reason? Um, and this is mm. a debate, but a rabbit hole we could go down forever. But I did read an interesting uh, blog. It was not a cricket blog. It was a, a more generalist sports blog in which someone was um, talking about sporting excuses, kind of ridiculous sporting excuses. And on this list, they gave an example of when England lost to South Africa in the Test Series in 1999, and someone after, one of the England players after the game said one of the contributing factors had been low cloud cover. Now, to this blogger, this was kind of a ludicrous example of an excuse along the same lines as the alignment of, of Venus in the planetary system. Um, but we know that obviously low cloud cover does have a significant mm. you know effect if suddenly you know a clear blue skies when you're bowling and then low cloud cover when you're passing absolutely is going to make it make it harder to do that so i think reasons and excuses are sometimes slightly hard to separate as well um now finally i just think i just have to share what i think is the best cricketing excuse that um that i've come across which came from 2001 where um it was a it was a tournament on the subcontinent um sri lanka had reached the final and were playing against pakistan and at the very late no very late notice they had to change their kit because their sponsor dropped out so they had to get new shirts and trousers uh, made with different branding no one thought twice about it. Um, before the game, um, Sri Lanka went on to lose. They scored 173. Um, Pakistan won by five wickets. It was a 50 over a 50 over game. Quite soon after the game, reports began circulating that the Sri Lankan uh, skipper Jaya Surya was heard complaining that the trousers were so short that they had to improvise extensions in the dressing room and that the t-shirts were all were all way too tight. And he directly put this down to the reason for why they'd lost this game. What? How do you improvise extensions to your trousers? Goodness knows, my research didn't throw up any uh, any detailed. Um, I did look at some pictures of the of the game, and it looked like they were pretty pretty normally dressed, uh, t- to be honest. Um, I also read lots of reports of the game. And all of them talk about the excellence of the of the Pakistani um, bowling. None of them say that there was this kind of curious situation where the Sri Lankan batsmen couldn't lift their arms above their heads because their shirts were too tight, and that was what really kind of impeded their ability to um, uh, impeded their ability to play. But I think this is just a great example of probably you know when you um, when you do get thrashed, that kind of little niggling thing at the back of your head means that you will grasp for any possible excuse, any possible reason to then turn in to the overriding factor behind why the result hasn't gone your way. The review, and for this episode we have been reading Alan Ross's 1957 book Cape Summer and the Australians in England. Um, Alan Ross was the Observer's cricket correspondent. He was a a poet and an editor of the London magazine for many decades. Um, This book tells the story of Australia's 1956 visit to England and then subsequently England's 1956-7 tour of South Africa. Andy, what do you make of the way that Alan Ross chooses to structure this book? So at some level, it's very simple. We've got match reports done in a kind of day-by-day structure. 
Um, and then you have the wandering meanderings of Ross and sometimes the teams in between games. Um, you have, I, I guess, one advantage in some ways you have that Ross has is that a tour really was an endless endeavour in mm. those days. So you have lots of the number of games. games is extraordinary, isn't oh, it? You know, the warm ups yeah. go for of the Australians and England go for sort of five weeks or so, and you get this amazing chance to have a really thorough look at the team in the long form and then even between tests the number of games that are happening you know is mm. is very much something from a bygone era that we don't see anymore absolutely and it, it, it has the wonderful thing that it gives ross the opportunity to travel um it raises really interesting questions that he constantly comes back to about well how seriously should england be taking and how seriously should australia be taking all the tour games um but i guess at its core this is about writing about it's it's match reports at, at, at its heart and w how would you describe his uh, his approach so the um they are match reports they are the kind of things that you might read in a you know might read in a newspaper re reporting on a on a on a day's play and obviously he is a newspaper man in many in many ways um one of the things that kind of slightly got to me and i suppose this is a as a result of the fact that I don't know these series intimately, so I don't necessarily know myself what's going to happen on each day's play or indeed in each test, is that each um, each day begins with a spoiler. So each match begins with the scorecard, so you see the full scorecard before you start reading about the match. And I don't have the um, self-restraint not to look at that scorecard. <laughs> and then secondly, each day's play starts with a kind of three lines of, you know, Australia started promisingly today, but we're in a heap by the end of it. And then you go into the day's play. And that, for me, was a little bit of a kind of um, disappointment only because he is so... The pacing of his narrative is so strong and he really grips you with every day's play that you kind of are on tenterhooks not knowing which way the game's going to turn at any moment. So to know from the very beginning mm. where that is... I mean, were you, did you share that sense of wanting some more suspense in it? Yeah, well, I, I thought... I guess the challenge is, I, I, I suppose some of these were written for an audience that, that just wanted to know straight away, I guess, like a news report. But I, I completely agree on the pacing point because he does tell the story here of some wonderful test matches. We have um, Jim Laker's 19 wickets, mm. for example. But a couple of them are pretty average test matches and yep. I think it's the real testament to a good writer that you find the story of a test match from you know 70 odd years ago completely compelling because of the way he tells it um he also is very happy as a tourist mm -hmm. and I think uh, you see him treating that part of his writing as seriously as his cricket writing um i mean what what did you take from that one of the things that his um his kind of writing on traveling around both both around england but also around south africa reminded me of really strongly was was the great late great recently late um great travel writer jan jan morris that kind of um that kind of engagement with a place that kind of completely leaves the author out of it. We actually very rarely, with a couple of notable exceptions, we very rarely hear about, you know, Ross. It's not about a lot of 
like a lot of travel cricket and travel writing nowadays which is about the adventures of that individual in this country it's very much about that country its culture its history and i found myself actually learning a lot about south africa yes ross has a slightly you know a mildly colonialist um lens that hasn't in some instances dated very well but he is writing in the 1950s so really what can you you know what can you expect um but i just thought it was so refreshing that it wasn't just about you know anecdotes we read a book recently about irish cricket where there are a lot of anecdotes about drinking with the players there's very very little of that and more of a genuine sense of of wonder at visiting these um yeah. visiting these countries there, there clearly was a lot of drinking but you're right that it, it, it's not it's not sort of front and center he he clearly was traveling with a budget that a modern journalist could only dream of but i think it's very impressive that amidst the play that he clearly had he doesn't ignore the politics uh, and the difficulty of the situation um, one may lunch in the Rand Club, play tennis in the afternoon, bridge in the evenings and discuss over endless whiskies, anything under the sun. But the shadow remains, the issue returns, moral problems have a way of refusing to be shelved. Which I think captures very well this, this sense of he's here on a holiday, he's here, well, here, here on a working holiday, but, but that's not enough to escape the seriousness of the situation. I think that's also, that quotation is also a really great example of his kind of understatement. You know, he's very rarely someone who's sort of histrionic in his in his opinions, and that extends to the cricket pitch as well. He's not someone who, um, you know, particularly when it comes down to the fact that um, England ended up drawing that South African series to all, um, which is was quite remarkable at that point. England hadn't lost overseas to South Africa possibly ever by that by that point and so to draw a series was a very um was a very very big deal and what ross doesn't do um throughout in that instance and also in the in the ashes series he doesn't um use his uh use his sort of platform as it were as an opportunity to take pot shots at decisions that he doesn't you know agree with it's clear that he doesn't agree with certain decisions particularly that peter may as captain has 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 made um but he's not looking for those kind of you know those those sort of headlines i suppose in a way which is which yeah. makes it much more um which makes his writing much more considered he's much more interested in what happened um and being a beautiful describer of that than sort of recreating it in his own image and saying what he would have done if he was mm. on the pitch i i wonder and i don't want to go too down the, the the classic everything was better in the old days but i do wonder if this is a sort of pressure of modern journalism that you want your columnist to come up with the controversy that you can and perhaps ross and others of the time were operating in an environment where they were free to to not be controversial um, we can't leave Ross without talking about his his writing itself. Mm. Um, and as we noted at the start, he, he was a, a poet as well. Um, and uh, I mean, I think we could quote plenty of lines here. Uh, I, I was struck by, he describes a pitch that rarely misbehaved. So, you know, you've got the occasional bouncer. Perhaps as for tired businessmen who like a night out, a single frolic sufficed for a long time. <laughs> And this, this struck me as just being so unexpected as a as a um, as a simile, but but also it, there, there was within it he was writing about a cricket pitch and yet still taking a real jab at uh, at tired businessmen as well. Somehow. There's a real there's a real sort of playfulness to the way that he 
to the way that he writes and a real kind of again you don't get the sense of any any bitterness there's a kind of affection you know there's a kind of affection there too um i loved his description of the the australian uh, Mackay who quotes patrolled at third man as if on the lookout for red indian red indians but batting prodded and pushed like a piece of meccano his locomotion had gone awry again it's a completely unexpected metaphor but i think we all kind of know what that would Mm. what that would look like and there's a certain kind of vividness to the um to the to the to the language as well just as you know keith miller who who um who makes square cuts uh, with the casual indulgence of a bridegroom cutting the cake <laughs> uh which is just and i think one of the one of the things that i love about this um book and one of the reasons why i'd really recommend it is that it doesn't just feel like a piece of of cricketing history and you don't just read it for the beauty of the language powerful though that is it really feels like you're watching these games and they're you know kind of stepping through them day by day it's actually a really sort of real thrill to get to know some of these cricketers in this in this way in a way that I think is actually quite quite rare in cricket writing and I think a real reminder that the match report uh, in its sort of purest form can still be the really sort of highest form, I guess, of cricket writing. I mean, we review many wonderful biographies, uh, many wonderful books that, that sort of have higher aspirations that talk about sort of the, the philosophy of the game. I mean, but actually um, just reporting on the game wonderfully, imaginatively and precisely as well. I mean, he's also equally at home talking about the technical side of the game. Um, on a very sort of niche point, and this I think happens when you read a chunk of a writer's work brought together, I chuckled when he, in, in two separate matches, a fielder picking up a ball at pace is both is on both occasions compared to a horseman picking up a handkerchief and on one occasion it's a cowboy and on one occasion it's a cossack horseman and i just thought this was a wonderful insight into how ross's brain worked that somewhere in his mind these mythical horsemen are flying around um so that is uh alan ross's uh cape summer and the australians in england i don't even know if it's if it's in print at the moment but it is available on kindle which is how i um how i read it and it was once available in the in the whole library which is how um <laughs> andy read it from via a now decommissioned copy i assume purloined from a second not shop stolen somewhere. yes um and that was the uh, 143rd episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Thanks for uh, joining us. By the way, if there are any books that you uh, particularly love that we haven't reviewed on the podcast, we'd love to love to hear from you. You can always get in touch over on Twitter at Reverse Swept. Mm-hmm.